The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, good morning. It is good to see you. Come on in. Join us for our class this morning. All right, good morning. And join, if you're joining us online, uh, thank you for taking the time out of your morning to do that. Um, I'm using some notes that we have looked at before, uh, parts of them. They are on the website in the uh, fbcaa.org slash docs, D-O-C-S, or documents, or you can find it in the menu at the top. Uh, I think it's the connect menu. It's there, uh, so you can download that PDF file and uh, take a look. Um, So... We're going to begin. Our study has been the last two times. We looked at last Sunday evening and then Wednesday as well, and now this morning. And it is on the matter of Old Testament texts used in evangelism. And so if you've ever been ministering to folks in uh, your circle of influence who aren't, aren't believers, and you can get to the Old Testament with them, there are some important texts that you can use to help them to understand the gospel and to see the relevance of it. We've looked at about a dozen of these already, actually a little bit more than that, and uh, I'll just review them quickly, just list them off, and then we'll spend the, the lion's share of our time with the new texts this morning. Um, so we looked at a number of texts. I'm just going to list them off. You don't have to, if, ta- if you're taking notes, you don't have to feel like you have to write all these down feverishly because... These notes are available on the website. If you can't find them there, get with me. I'll make sure you've got them. Uh, You want to follow along with those, and uh, you'll have them for reference. This is not an exhaustive list, to be sure. First of all, we looked at Psalm 16, which talks about the resurrection of the Messiah. You want to be familiar with that text. Uh, uh, David says, being a prophet... Uh, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor abandon your Holy One to see corruption. And uh, that's a prophecy of the resurrection of the Messiah. Psalm 110 is another key text of the Bible. Psalm 110, oft repeated in the New Testament. And there are two verses there especially that we looked at. Psalm 110 about sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We saw that Hebrews 10.13 teaches us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God right now, waiting for His kingdom to be uh, given to Him. And then in Psalm 110.4, not only is He going to rule, but He's also going to be a forever priest. That's Psalm 110.4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's another extremely important text which forms the basis of really Hebrews chapter 7. So when you're witnessing to people, you can share with them that God has had a plan from eternity past and especially revealed in the Old Testament that Gentiles, not just Jewish people, but Gentiles would have an in on the things of God. I don't know if you realize how significant that is because in Ephesians it tells us that before salvation came to us, we were strangers, remember? Aliens from the covenants of promise. We had no hope. We were without God in the world. We were just the Gentiles speaking generally as a, as a group. We're just out in the cold. And we had no connection to the things of God. But now, 
Paul says, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We ought to glorify God for His mercy to the Gentiles. He didn't have to do that. In fact, he didn't, he didn't have to even select Abraham or, or any of Abraham's offspring for his uh, people. He, didn't have to, he's, he doesn't depend on us for his, for his good feelings or his honor or his glory, although we ought to glorify him. We saw in Psalm 2 that the nations rage against Christ. Boy, isn't this true. Um, they did against the, uh, the leaders of the Jews, against the apostles and the new believers in the church in Jerusalem. And they recognized that, that the, the, uh, as the King James has it, the heathen rage and uh, they plot vain things against God, but he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He shall have them in derision, hold them in derision. We saw in Amos chapter 5 the idolatry of God's chosen people, how they departed from Him. And this is an illustration of how the people of God can depart, at least the Old Testament people of God can depart into idolatry. Church people cannot depart into idolatry. God will not allow that to, uh, to happen. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is kind of a prime example of what I'm talking about. There, as we've been looking, Paul has told them, flee idolatry. Don't have anything to do with those idol-worshiping uh, temples and uh, all of that stuff that, that we'll talk about again this morning as Paul draws chapter 10 to a close. But uh, believers are going to have nothing to do with idolatry. They're supposed to escape from that out of their prior life. Um, Isaiah 66 talks about God's uh, infinity, that He's eternal. Um, and uh, In fact, we looked at this on Thursday night with some of the college students and singles, this idea of God's infinite, infinite uh, expanse, uh, eternity and time and and infinity and space and so on, uh, being everywhere present. Of course, Isaiah 53. You have to have that. Uh, if you don't have any other Old Testament text, have that one just tucked away in your memory. Uh, that was used by Philip on the, um, on the desert road with the Ethiopian official. Remember? And he happened to be reading there in, in, um, in Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Uh, Psalm 2 also teaches the glorification of, and resurrection of the Messiah. Okay, So what we're saying is that as Paul said in Romans 1, the Gospel was revealed by the prophets in, in old times. Components, pieces of this Gospel were revealed. Now what was not revealed was the church. The church was not a clear... Uh, there was not a clear revelation of that in the Old Testament of Jews and Gentiles being bound, bound together in one body in the church. But the fact that God was going to save Gentiles was certainly there in uh, the Old Testament. We saw that in Isaiah 42 and 49 where God said, hey, it's too small a thing for you, servant, Messiah, to be a light to my people Israel. I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles as well. I'm going to expand your ministry to not just the Jews, but also to the Gentile peoples. Um, Isaiah 55 is another text. talks about uh, the sure mercies of David. Those are going to be given to Jesus Christ okay, and His people. The sure mercies are the promises of David given to uh, the people at the time of Christ's reign in the future. Um, I already mentioned Psalm 16. That was used a couple times in the book of Acts. One of the most troubling ones that the book of Acts uses is Habakkuk 1.5, which doesn't have a whole lot to do with evangelism except this. 
Habakkuk there is saying, God is saying to Habakkuk, I'm going to work a work in your days with sending the Babylonians. Were you all here when we did the Habakkuk study not too long ago? Yeah, so you remember uh, verse 1-5 of Habakkuk. And God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to send the Babylonians to punish the nation of Israel. And of course, Habakkuk is taken aback by this because he's like, how can you use a people more wicked than we are to judge us? And of course, God says, well, because A, you deserve it. B, uh, I'll get them too later on, but I'm going to use them as my wicked instruments for now. By the way, God does raise up kings and, and, and put down kings, doesn't He? And sometimes He raises up evil kings over nations in order to accomplish His purposes, even if that might not be something we pray for, say, in our upcoming election. You know, um, So, He does those things and He has wise reasons and ways of doing that. But the point of Habakkuk was, God says, says to him, look, I'm going to do this, but even though I'm telling you this, you still won't believe. You won't believe even though it's told to you. And that principle is picked up in the book of Acts in the preaching of the Gospel. By the way, all these texts came up in my study of Acts. If you didn't remember, or I didn't mention that already. When I was studying Acts and the preaching there, all these texts were used there. And so, you know, Paul and the other apostles are saying, look, we're telling you, Jesus came... He died for sinners. He rose again. If you believe in Him, you'll be saved. If you don't, you'll be lost. It's all laid out. Now, even though we've told you, are you going to believe? And many people refuse to believe, even though the truth is laid out there. The witnesses are marshaled. The evidence is clear. There's an empty tomb. There's no Messiah in there. Christ predicted His death, burial, and resurrection. Then He accomplished it for sinners such as ourselves. And people still don't believe hard-hearted sinfulness. And that's what you'll run into. And you might at some point use a text like that. I don't know if you'll run into a case like that, but if somebody if somebody presses you in, in unbelief and, and says, look, I'm not going to believe that stuff, at least you could tell them, look, do you understand everything I've said? Okay, now listen to this. The Bible says that there are many people who understanding that will still reject it even though they know it. And this is Habakkuk 1.5. And that's happening to you right now, friend. If you're rejecting the Gospel, that's happening to you right now. And so maybe that will get their attention. Alright, we also looked at from the book of Acts, uh, Amos 9, God promises that He's going to rebuild the, the uh, dynasty of David. And then He is going to um, raise up the Gentiles underneath that kingdom program. Uh, back to Isaiah 6, uh, you remember that God told Isaiah, hey, listen, go and uh, tell this people uh, these messages that I have for you. And Isaiah says, how long? And uh, God says, well, until the cities are destroyed and everything is a mess uh, because these people won't listen. Again, another one of those kind of hard-hearted verses. Joel 2 is used in Acts 2 to speak of the apostles having received the Spirit. And then um, Psalm well, actually, 1 Samuel 13 uh, talks about God seeking a man after his own heart. And that was fulfilled in King David. Again, not as not real close to an evangelistic theme, but it is used in the book of Acts. So now we, we move off of the book of Acts in terms of the texts that are used by the apostles there. And we, I'm just going to look at a number of other texts which are 
important in the Old Testament. The first of those is in Genesis 3.15. So with these, let's just look at them instead of flying through them like I've done here up to this point with the review. In Genesis 3.15. By the way, our normal teacher is James Widgeon, of course, and he's out uh, with his family uh, out of town. They um, laid to rest his mother yesterday and uh, had the funeral service at Union Baptist Church and uh, she was interred at Union Baptist Seminary right there, uh, cemetery right on the, on the grounds there of the church. So you want to pray for the Widgeon family and especially James' father, Theodore. I wrote a note to him yesterday uh, to encourage him. Um, he is uh, missing now his wife of over 70 years. So that's a long time. Yeah. Verse uh, 15 of Genesis 3, coming back to our theme of Old Testament Gospel texts, uh, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, speaking of unbelievers and believers generally, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So when he says seed, actually it's speaking in a kind of solidarity or representative context. And the seed is capitalized in my Bible, so in, in actuality it refers to the Messiah. And the Messiah shall crush your head, serpent, and in the process he shall bruise, or you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so for us who know the Gospel story, it's a pretty clear allusion to the work of Christ on the cross in which He crushed the work of Satan, right? Didn't kill Satan per se. Satan will be dealt with uh, in the end time. But also in the crucifixion, Satan thought that he got the better of Jesus, didn't he? Only for a short time. He didn't quite get the program. Uh, and many many people, by the way, miss it too. Uh, the Old Testament teaches us that Christ had to suffer and then to be glorified. But for example, what did the apostles think? They thought when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the kingdom of God was going to immediately appear. They forgot the suffering phase that had to occur first. And so it's important for us to recognize that. In fact, um, I'm kind of running ahead of myself, but since I'm on the topic, let's just touch on that, that being uh, bruised in the heel is something that if you look in Luke 24, you'll see has been laid out quite clearly. Verse 26 of Luke 24. Once again, Luke 24, verse 26 Christ is resurrected. He's on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples and they tell Him of their disappointment that the Messiah has been knocked out. And, they're, you know, now, and then they, they, they report that you know, His body was not found and some are saying that He's alive now and they were all confused and, and so on. And in verse 25, He said, O foolish ones and slow to, of heart to believe and all the prophets have spoken. Here's verse 26. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? 
And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And that's the end of that kind of little piece of text that, that now they move on to the village where they're going and the narrative continues. But the idea is that he's, he's telling them from back here in your Bible all the stuff that was there. I, I have to suffer. I had to suffer to die. And so on. Of course, they didn't know it was the Messiah at the moment. Their eyes were, were blinded to who he was. They were so sorrowful and, and out of sorts. Uh, but we see the same kind of thing in uh, Peter's letters. If you go over there. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter 1, 10. This ought to put to rest any notion that we can ignore the Old Testament. We certainly cannot. 1 Peter 1, 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. There it is. It was prophesied to us uh, beforehand. Searching, here it is, verse 11. What or what manner of time... The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. There it is again. Sufferings of Christ and glories that would follow. And so when you use the Old Testament in your evangelistic work, you can show the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You must be able to because Jesus said so and Peter said so. And we've already seen. For example, you want both in one place? Sufferings and glory, go to Isaiah 53. You want glory, go to Psalm 16, Psalm 110. You know, you want uh, all these other passages that we've already looked at. You know, uh, the resurrection of Christ, Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Things like that. You can find the sufferings of Christ and the following glories in the Old Testament. Alright, so that was, that was a little rabbit trail off of Genesis 3.15. Okay, so... Um, let's go to uh, Isaiah 32. It's kind of another uh, section that deals with the glory of Christ. I suppose you can make a, a case as to why the disciples, even if they were well versed in the Old Testament Scripture, would have uh, focused on the glory. I mean, we do the same thing, right? We don't want to focus on the bad news. <laughs> Kind of skip over the bad news, and we, you know, focus on the glorious good news. Um, psychologically, I think there's an effect there. Although, in another sense, everybody likes the bad news, right? Bad news travels faster than good news. <laughs> yeah. Well, Isaiah 32. Isaiah, rich, prof, uh, rich prophetic uh, book here, says this: 32:1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. And princes will rule with justice. Okay? That is the Messiah, an allusion to the Messiah. And who are the princes? Well, that's an interesting question, I think. Because you have Jesus talking to the disciples and I can't remember the verse address right now. But He says to them, You will reign rule with me on twelve thrones over the nation of Israel. Remember that text in the New Testament and the Gospels? So, there are the apostles ruling over the what? Twelve tribes over the Jews. And then you have a text such as, again, we're talking about who are these princes that will rule with justice. 
Then we have a text such as 1 Timothy where Paul says that uh, we will reign with Christ. We, the church. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you know that you will judge angels? So the princes that he's talking about are his people. Either Jewish or Gentile ruling in their different departments apparently in this kingdom. This large household of God that will come in the new uh, well, before the new heavens and the new earth in the, in the ne- next age after the tribulation. Amazing. Um, so, we see here a king reigning in righteousness. And we're just going to keep kind of bouncing back and forth between these different texts. Let's go to um, 1 Samuel 2.35. This is one you might not have thought of before. But I bet if you've read your Bible, you've crossed over this passage and maybe the thought has crossed your mind. 1 Samuel 2, verse number 35. Now, the context of this prophecy is the situation with Eli. And you remember Eli was okay but uh, his sons were a mess and he hadn't restrained his sons like he should. And so God is making a prophecy here and uh, he says to, to Eli, and he's going to actually use Samuel as well in this later on, but in verse 35 of chapter 2, he says this, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will uh, do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Now, there's a little bit to untangle there, but my understanding of that text is you're going to have a priest operating under the aegis of the Messiah, the anointed one, who will be there forever. And this line of priests will operate under him uh, and before him and be faithful as opposed to the ancient priests of Israel who were not faithful, who had uh, serious problems in their ministry. Okay, so that's the priest. So God's going to raise up a king. He's going to raise up a priest. And I'm sure I must have this text somewhere here. I do. Let's go to Deuteronomy. We'll uh, just finish the triumvirate here. Priest, king, and Deuteronomy 18. Prophet. Capital P. This is where the, old, the uh, priests in John's day, John the Baptist's day, come to him and they say, Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? And he, of course, denies it. He's not. He's... he's a voice crying out in the wilderness. He's a messenger to go before the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah. He's not the prophet. But Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now there's some, I'll call it minor debate here. Some have said this is exclusively a promise of the Messiah, which I've taken that position. Or others say, this is actually a promise that God's going to raise up a line of prophets after Moses, which is represented in the school of the prophets. Elijah, Elisha, 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, all those guys, culminating with the person of Christ. I don't think we have to get into a big food fight over that debate, uh, but the point is that he's going to raise up a prophet and that's going to culminate in the person of Christ. And listen to verse 18 as well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. That is a judgment. Okay, And then he goes on to talk about any prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, he shall die. Okay, So there was a death penalty for false prophets. But let me take you back to this idea of hearing this prophet, of listening to the prophet. Look at verse 15 again. Him you shall hear. Okay, does that call to mind any New Testament text? What New Testament text or passage or situation does that call to your mind? You don't have to give me an address. Give me a, a heading, a title. Anybody? The baptism of Jesus? Okay. Anyone else? Which passage is that? Jay, I'll look that up. I was thinking of another one. Okay, Ben, ben has got the transfiguration. That's the one I was thinking of. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, let me just call this out a little more carefully for those that couldn't hear that or those that are on the um, live stream. So we're focusing on this phrase, God's going to raise up a prophet, him you shall hear. And uh, we were just going to look at the New Testament. And uh, I don't see the phrase about hearing in Matthew 3. It might be in, uh, maybe it's uh, escaped my notice from... Uh, the other passages where the baptism account is, of the Lord is given, maybe it's, uh, let's see, it is very similar. Yeah, those are just references to this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But let's turn to Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration as it later became called. He took Peter, James, and John, his brother, with him. And he was transfigured before them. And uh, Peter opened his mouth and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So here's a voice from heaven saying just exactly what he said 1,500 years before, 1,400 years and some before, about this prophet that would be raised up in Deuteronomy 18. Him you shall hear. Okay. Now this seems to me to be significant for a couple of reasons. One is it does allude back to that text in the Old Testament, helping us identify Jesus as the prophet with a capital P. 
but it also does something else. It's telling the representatives of the Jewish people here, Peter, James, and John, okay, you've got Elijah and you've got Moses, and then you've got Jesus. And which one of those am I telling you to hear? You've heard Moses and you've heard Elijah before. It's time to hear Christ now. Which says something to me about these, how, the, how the new revelation has to be viewed as completing, fulfilling, um, I don't want to say superseding in a sense, but it is that. It's not exactly that, but it's something like don't focus on the Old Testament law now or the Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah being representatives of them. Rather, focus on the new revelation in Jesus Christ. Christ would say to the disciples, you know, you don't put new wine into an old wineskin. You don't put a new patch, a new piece of cloth as a patch on an old pair of jeans because once that shrinks in the first wash cycle, then it's going to tear and make the hole even worse that you tried to repair. The same way, you can't take Christ and the, and the Christian teaching and shoehorn it into the Old Testament forms. That's been fulfilled and superseded now and you have the teaching of Christ. That doesn't mean that the promises of the Old Testament have disappeared. No, they're going to be fulfilled. They're going to be fulfilled, but they're going to be fulfilled in the light of all the stuff that Christ has done for the people. So that's the coming prophet. So Christ will be raised up as a king, raised up as a priest, be raised up as a prophet. Um, let's look at Daniel 9. Daniel 9. If, this, if a detailed study of Daniel 9 doesn't set your friends back on their heels, I don't know what would. Um, and you remember we had the series in Daniel where I used uh, the slides, uh, the PowerPoint up there on the screen or the wall for us. Those are all available on the church website if you want to look at them. There are hundreds of slides there on Daniel. If you look at Daniel chapter 9, you see a detailed analysis of this prophecy that's given. And let's just read it 25 through 27 to remind us. Again, we're talking about how are we going to use the Old Testament in our evangelism. This way, know therefore and understand, verse 25, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Those weeks should be sevens, really, sevens, groups of seven years. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Okay? So when was the command to restore and build Jerusalem? That was in the book of Nehemiah, 445 B.C. When was Daniel written? Anybody remember? hundred years before that. 536 maybe B.C. is the end of Daniel's uh, ministry. So that's the latest that it could have been given, this prophecy. He was taken captive in 605 B.C. and lived in Babylon from youth all the way through the 70 years. And he was so, apparently, we're guessing kind of, but educated guess, he was probably so old by the time the return to the land came that he couldn't go back. Um, but other, the other people did. Some of them did. But in any case, uh, he's here a hundred years before this and, and the angel Gabriel is telling him, look, from the time that that command is issued 
there will be seven and sixty-two groups of seven years. And if you remember how we looked at that, that calculated right out to the time when Christ would enter into Jerusalem at the last week, the Passion Week, and cry over the people of Israel and say, if only you knew this your day. And they didn't, of course, and they rejected Him. But that is a very precise, precise prophecy. And look at verse 26. And after the 62 sevens, Messiah shall be cut off, okay, but not for Himself. So remember, the sufferings of Christ and then the glories that would follow. The Bible says very clearly, the Messiah will be cut off. What does that mean? That means He will die. That's Old Testament language. If you're cut off from the land of the living, that means you're in the land of the dead. So you've been killed. He was cut off, but not for Himself. Isn't that a glorious phrase? He was not cut off for Himself. He was cut off for you and me. And then it says, "...and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary." The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. And then it goes on and talks about the work of this figure we know as the Antichrist. But we've dealt with the relevant portions about the Messiah. Okay, So the timing of the Messiah is coming and His death is laid out here very clearly. 500 plus years before it occurred. Nearly 600 years before it occurred. Since we're in Daniel, let's go back to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 13. Part of the Gospel, when, remember when I talked about the Gospel of the Kingdom a few months ago? The Gospel of the Kingdom. The Gospel that we preach, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is a subset of that Gospel. Remember, the reason that you need to get saved is because if you don't, you will be facing the righteous wrath of the coming King. He's the boss. Okay, He is in charge. As I've said many times before, He is Lord. He is going to be King. Notice this. And because of that, He's going to come and take this kingdom for Himself. And even if we allude back to Psalm 2, where the Bible says, how do you respond to this king? Well, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Do homage to him. Worship him so that you will not get in trouble with him. In John chapter 3, remember, Jesus said, if you aren't born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. What is that kingdom? Here it is. Daniel 7.13 I was watching in the night visions... Daniel says, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, there's God the Father, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. The puny kingdoms of the earth, even the United States, Russia, the Middle Eastern kingdoms, the great kingdom in China, will all be put aside 
No thanks to them. And Christ's kingdom will reign over all of them. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, Revelation tells us. We have to be rightly related to that King. Okay? That's, that's the Gospel. That's the Gospel of the Kingdom. When Jesus came and John the Baptist, they said, repent for the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. You've got to get right with this King. Otherwise, you're in big time trouble. And that message is still our message today. I mean, if nothing else... When we go to people, we have to tell them, like in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, there's a day coming when the Lord has appointed a day of judgment by that man whom He's appointed, who is, He proved to be by raising from the dead. And He says, He now commands all men everywhere to repent. I mean, tell that to your friends and family. That's what they need to hear. Well, they don't want to hear it, but that's what they need to hear because if they don't repent, they will die in their sins. That's where the hard edge of the gospel comes, but it has to come. It's not all just, you know, uh, come to me, you know, you that weary and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's a nice invitation and, and suitable for some people who are really feeling their lostness. But people who aren't feeling their lostness need to recognize what we see here is not just everything that is. There's a kingdom with a king who demands righteousness, and if you don't have that, you're out. Daniel 7:13. We know some of the passages that talk about the sinfulness of man. Um, Psalm 58:3, "The wicked are estranged from the womb, speaking lies." Uh, Ecclesiastes 7:20, "There is not a man who does right and does not sin on the earth." You remember that passage? We probably think more of like Romans chapter. Three, you know, uh, you know, there's none righteous, no, not one. Those kind of passages, but you can find those very same truths in the uh, Old Testament. I'm just uh, hunting around here for Ecclesiastes seven, verse twenty. It says, "For there's not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin." That's ancient truth, not just recent or Pauline truth. Um, Let's see, we'll end with one more. Isaiah. Isaiah 28. Okay, so again, I encourage you to meditate on these. Look them up sometime. Focus on them. Commit some of them to memory. At least their general content and address. So if you're witnessing to somebody, you can turn your Bible and say, hey, look at this. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. That is used in the New Testament in a kind of, we could say a loose fashion, but Paul says it this way, whoever believes will not be ashamed. Whoever believes will not be ashamed. My friends, I just end with this uh, encouragement for you today, and that is this. Um, you believed in Christ, but the world wants to make you feel like um, you know, you're the off-scouring of the world, you're a piece of trash, you're a simpleton, you're a backwards religious zealot. Don't be ashamed. The one who believes in Christ will not be put to shame.
you have to re- remember, uh, shame doesn't come ultimately from people. The real shame we need to be concerned about is the shame that comes from God. And so, if you believed, you will not be put to shame. You will not suffer a loss. You will be saved. You will be ultimately saved. And that's the thing that really can keep us going can, and really help us. And, and for somebody who is uh, under your care spiritually, you can tell them the same thing. Look, believe and you will be saved. You will never be put to shame. You will never be sorry that you believed in Christ. In the end, you will be redeemed and saved and safe forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we come with thanks before You because of all these texts that You have given to us in the Old Testament. And it's just sprinkled throughout everywhere. And Lord, we admit that from in many of our cases, we haven't learned the first 39 books of the Bible too well. We focus maybe on the last 27, but the first 39 have been somewhat of a mystery sometimes. And I pray that You would help us to demystify them, to learn them a little better, to be able to, to, to handle some of these texts from Genesis and the Psalms and Isaiah and Daniel and, and elsewhere. First Samuel, so that we can give a credible account of our belief even from the more ancient of the revelation of God. Thank you for these ones participating this morning. I pray that our meeting next will be a blessing, will be well attended, and will strengthen us in the most holy faith. In Jesus' name, amen.